Brother Matt, if you could give me a little more volume on the monitors right here, that would be appreciated. 1 Kings 19, we're going to be reading from verse 4 down through verse number 7. We'll read the odd verses together. I'll read the even verses alone. Beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, speaking of Elijah, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Verse 5 together. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And that uh, the title of my sermon comes right out of the end of verse 7 there. and the, the, the title is this. Is the journey too great for thee? Is the journey too great for thee? Let's pray. God, as we look at this uh, passage today, Lord, no doubt uh, standing in front of me today are people who are weary and wore out either from a frantic-paced schedule that has been kept over a long period of time Lord, some kind of opposition that has stood in their way, or maybe both. Lord, some kind of trial or trouble that has them weighed down. And Lord, I pray, God, that uh, you'd help us as we look at the life of Elijah. And we see a man who is on the brink of suicide. A man who is ready to end his life. In the dead center of your will. And Lord, we consider uh, his life. May that story, this story, encourage us along. Lord, may some mentalities and some mindsets be changed in regards to how you want us to live our lives and how you want us to view trials and and hard times. Lord, there are others here today who are not going through a hard time. Life's great for them right now. But God, uh, we all know people who are hurting. We all know people who need this truth. And so, Lord, where that is the case, I pray you'd help us to intently listen so we can be a blessing and help to others as we look at and live through the life and eyes of Elijah here for a few minutes. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Let me begin the sermon this morning by asking you a loaded question. Alright? And I don't want you to answer out loud, obviously, but I just want you to think about the question and see uh, what your answer is. There will be an immediate yes or no that comes to most of your brains. Okay, here's the question. Does God give a Christian... More of a burden than he is capable of bearing. Does God give a Christian more of a burden than he is capable of bearing? How many of you say no? Alright, put your hands down. How many of you say yes? Alright. Somebody in here is right and somebody's wrong. Let me, let me say this first of all. We know that God does not allow Satan to tempt us above, beyond what we're capable of bearing. 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, watch this now, that ye may be able to bear it. When it comes to temptations, there is no temptation that God will allow on you that, that you cannot bear. 
You might be here today and you might be thinking, I've got so much temptation on me. I am enslaved to it. I'm entrapped by it. I don't know how to get away from it. Pastor, God has allowed more temptation on me than I'm capable of bearing. To that I would say, no, He hasn't. No, He hasn't. You have got to learn to look at God's ways of escapes and you've got to learn how to take those. Now, if you say no to God's way of escapes often enough, then what will happen is you'll find yourself buried under that temptation. You say, well, pastor, what do I do? Start taking the ways out. And slowly over time, you will learn that temptation will no longer enwrap you or engulf you or own you. You can beat temptation. But what about trials? What about the hardships of life? Does God pour more on a Christian than he can possibly handle? Here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 19, verse 7 there, the very end of the verse, you find the angel of the Lord where he tells Elijah, he says, Arise and eat. Why? Because the journey is too great for thee. The journey is too great for thee. What was the angel saying? He was saying, Elijah, you've walked the path I've wanted you to walk. And that journey, it's been too great for you. Now, I'm going to pick a side on the yeses and the noes. And if you're wrong, please don't get your feelings hurt, okay? I love you, I promise. Sometimes God does allow more on the Christian than he or she's capable of carrying. You say, what? He does. Why would God allow more on the Christian than he's capable of carrying? Because God wants that Christian to learn that it's not about you and your strength. It's about him and his strength. Here Elijah had been buried on a journey that was tumultuous, that was hard, that was so great that even in his doing what was right over and over and over again for a long period of time, he found himself collapsing under a tree, looking up to heaven, asking God to kill him and take him home. To kill him and take him home. Maybe... You stumbled into church this morning feeling like life's journey, life's journey is just too great for you. Too great for you. My prayer today is that through the message that God will help correct your thinking when it comes to what God allows into the life of a believer and why, why God allows such things to come into your life. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30, we find this verse. It says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, uh, if you had gone up to Elijah, there under the tree, he's exhausted, he's asking God to let him die, and you would have said to Elijah, Elijah, is the yoke of the Lord easy? Is the burden of the Lord light? Can I tell you what Elijah would have told you? No, it's very heavy. It's very heavy. So, was Elijah wrong? Let me just say this, that the words uh, light and easy are relative terms. You follow me here? Light and easy are relative terms. Light is relative to heavy. Easy is relative to difficult. Okay? Um, was Elijah's load heavy? Yes, but not in comparison to what Ahab and Jezebel were going to face. You see, Ahab and Jezebel had not chosen the Lord's way. They had chosen Satan's way. How hard were things going to be on Ahab? Ahab was going to die in battle. Jezebel was going to be taken and thrown out of a tower 
Her body was going to smash on the ground below, and dogs were going to lick the makeup off her face. Makeup's been around a long time. Lick the makeup off her face. And the dogs were going to come around and lick her blood. Now, now does Elijah's load look a little bit lighter? Elijah, however, was going to be carried to heaven in a chariot. I'd say Elijah's load was much lighter. You ever notice how profound children can be? How sometimes you ask them a simple question and what comes out of their mouth maybe is accidentally profound? There was a teacher, Sunday school teacher, who read this uh, text to her class out of Matthew 11. The text we just looked at. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The teacher then asked her class, she said, Who can tell me what a yoke is? One child raised her hand and said, well, that's what's in the center of an egg. No. Um, another child raised her hand and said, a yoke is something that they put on the necks of an animal. The teacher then asked the class, she said, what is the yoke that God puts on us? A little girl thought for a minute. She raised her hand and she said this. She said, the yoke of God is when God puts his arms around our necks. The yoke of God is when God puts His arms around our necks. And i got to say, that is profound. God put His arm around Elijah's neck. And He walked Elijah, not in a, you know, not in a stranglehold, but around His neck. And together He had walked Elijah down a very difficult path. And as He walked down that path, as He journeyed down that path, Elijah felt that the journey that was too great. The task was too hard. And it brought him to a place where he was totally empty on every level. Totally empty on every level. And all he wanted to do was die. Sometimes, Christian, God puts His arm around your neck. He takes you down a path you just don't want to go down. Let me say this this morning. We may not like the journey. But I promise you, once you get to the end of the path, you will love the destination. You will love the destination. You may not like the journey to get there, but the destination, once you've arrived, you will know that it was worth it. This morning I propose that God will allow difficulties in our lives beyond what we can control and and even beyond what we can emotionally and physically handle so that we will learn to stop relying on ourselves And we'll learn to start relying on an almighty, all-powerful God. This morning, through the message, I want to take 1 Corinthians 7, or rather 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, and look at five observations of Elijah's journeys as we seek to answer this question, is the journey too great for thee? Point number one of the message is this, Elijah's accomplishments. Observation one, Elijah's accomplishments. Look with me, letter A, he challenged God's enemies. Letter A, he challenged God's enemies. Flip back over with me, with me to 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse number 1. Now, Elijah was a somebody in the eyes of God here in this passage. God knew who Elijah was. God had called Elijah. God had equipped Elijah to be a prophet. And God had uh, uh, ordained him to be something great. But Elijah was an unknown commodity at this point in, in the Bible uh, to almost everybody else. Look at verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now I want you to imagine this. Elijah is a nobody. He walks into the palace. 
He storms past security. He walks right into the throne room, maybe even interrupts the meeting. And he puts his finger in the face of Ahab and he says, because of your wickedness, it's not going to rain or do until I say so. And he turns around and he storms out. The door closes behind him. And Ahab goes, who is that guy? And um, and everyone goes, I don't know. And then now, all of a sudden, Elijah's the butt of all the jokes, right? Everyone's making fun of Elijah. Yeah, it's not going to rain. You see, it hasn't rained in two whole days. It must be because Elijah said it wasn't going to. Imagine with me your job. If some knucklehead, some nut job, came storming in off the street, and he was uncomely looking, and he walked right in past the secretary, right past the receptionist, right into your boss's office, and he, he made a big scene in the process, and he reached across the desk, and he put his finger in your boss's face, and he said, because of all the nasty office politics that goes on here, you are not going to turn a profit until I say so. He turns around and storms out. What would your boss do? He'd be like, who's that guy? Boy, that was crazy. Quarter one comes by, no profit. Quarter two, no profit. Quarter three, no profit. By the end of quarter four, where that guy coming to the office was the pivot point, people are starting to get nervous. Quarter five, quarter six, quarter seven. Now you're approaching the end of year number two. Year number two. And everyone's going, we got to find that guy. He said we weren't turning a profit until he said so. All hands on deck. Let's find this guy. Elijah, an unknown person, challenged, challenged the enemy of God. Walked in and boldly proclaimed, you're living wickedly, king, and we will not have rain in this country until I give the word. You know, God likes it when His people Stand up for Him. God likes it when His people take a stand for what's right. And God's people have a backbone. A real backbone. The old saying that's floated around for years and and, and couldn't be any more true than it is, is a saying that says, the only thing that must be for evil to exist in the world is for good men to say and do nothing. Nothing. You hear someone take God's name in vain? You don't say anything. You put up with cursing, you don't say anything. You put up with some riotous lifestyle, you don't say anything. Some years ago, Angela and I were living in suburbia, Baltimore. And uh, we're big Baltimore uh, sports fans. We're, uh, I'm a huge Orioles fan, love my Orioles. And uh, so far, they've beaten the Red Sox two out of three games. And hopefully they win today, amen? Brother Ernie's back there, and he's a Red Sox fan. And my son and Brother Ernie go back and forth all the time. It's great. Uh, but uh, love my Orioles. We were on a light rail train from suburbia Baltimore, taking it right up to the stadium, and we were going to go watch a game, and wouldn't you know it, the light rail broke down halfway there. And all these people, it's hot on there, it's the middle of summer, all these people are getting frustrated, and so uh, another light rail train pulled up, and uh, off the train we got, and we're going to go across the tracks, and we're going to get on another train, and that train was delayed getting there, and, and tensions rising, people are getting frustrated. Matthew at the time is probably three or four years old, April's two or three years old, and, and I'm standing there, and I'm holding one child, and it's a busy area, Angela's holding the other, and the lady right next to us just starts using every word in the book. And I very kindly and sweetly looked at her, and I said, 
ma'am, I've got small children. Would you mind not talking that way in front of them? And the lady with an attitude looked at me and she said, you need to bleep it, he bleep, get over it. And I looked at her and said, I'm not going to get over it. These are my children and it is my job to protect them. If you want to talk that way, you need to go down there where there aren't any children. And she said this, she said, I'm going to talk however I want to. This is a free country and you can't stop me and your children just need to go ahead and get used to it now. I wish I could have put handcuffs on her and taken her away. But that's not my jurisdiction. You know, if enough people say something to that lady about her language, I bet she'd watch her tongue. But if I'm the only voice, I'm the only voice, then what's going to stop her? What if every Christian on the planet decided we're going to start standing up for what's right? We're not going to tolerate it. We're not going to be mean and nasty about it. But we're not going to tolerate it. Here, Elijah storms right there into the, into the king's palace, right there in Samaria. He puts his finger in Ahab's face and he says, because of your evil doings, there will be no rain or dew until I give the word. And he storms out. And you know what? God has a track record of standing up for those that stand up for him. How did God stand up for Elijah? Well, he sent Elijah to the brook Cherith so that God's favorite football team, the Ravens, could feed his man. Amen? Told you I was a Baltimore sports fan. No, seriously, ravens, raven birds came and brought food to Elijah, and Elijah stayed there until the brook Cherith dried up, and then God sent him on a journey to another land, and he stayed in the home of a widow where he was fed out of the bottom of a barrel that God restored every day, and God replenished every day just enough to get them by. And God, by Elijah's faith, provided for Elijah. Why? Because Elijah was willing to challenge the enemies of God. We're looking at the accomplishments of Elijah this morning. Let me just say this morning, if you stand up to sin, that is an accomplishment. It's an accomplishment. Standing up to sin in your own heart and life, and standing up to sin in the public eye around you, that is an accomplishment. Letter B, he called down God's fire. He called down God's fire. Look at me in 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to look at verse 36 in a minute. The story goes that Elijah, after three plus years, he comes back uh, out of hiding uh, where he was with the widow, and he walks right back into Samaria, and one of, uh, one of the men there see Elijah, and he walks up to him and he says, Go tell your king I'm here and bring him to me. And the guy said, listen, I'm not going anywhere without you. He said, I'm taking you with me. He said, if I go and the Lord leads you away, then when Ahab gets here, he's going to have my head lopped off if you're not around. And Ahab said, or rather Elijah said, I'm not going anywhere. So the servant went and got uh, Ahab and brought him back. And Ahab looks at Elijah and he says, are you the one that's been troubling Israel? Isn't it funny, the one who's guilty of troubling Israel is blaming God's man for... Uh, for that being so. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen in my years of ministry that somehow the pastor who's giving out the advice becomes the bad guy. Listen, if you're not following biblical advice and counsel, the pastor's not the bad guy. The person that's not following the advice, well, finish it there. Are you troubling Israel, Elijah? Are you the man? And he says, no, my friend, your sin is the reason why Israel's troubled. Your the man. Elijah says this, he says, we're going to have a showdown of sorts, a duel of sorts. I want you to gather up all the prophets of Baal. They were bowing down and worshiping Baal. And I want to meet you at the top of Mount Carmel, or 
terrible, depending on what part of the country you grew up in. Amen? We're going to meet you up there at the top, and we're going to have a showdown, and we're going to see which God is the true God. So they get up there, and they're both given a bullock, and it's laid on an altar, and, 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 uh, and, and the prophets of Baal get to go first, and they try for several hours to call down fire, and they're unsuccessful. And then it's Elijah's turn. Look at verse 36. The Bible says there, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. For Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah got down on a knee. After the other people had had hours and hours, he got down on a knee. He prayed a very, very short prayer. And all of a sudden, God sent this fireball out of the sky. And it came down. And it didn't just slowly smolter and, and, and burn up the sacrifice. No, no, no. Everything was disintegrated. The stones that were had built up the altar was disintegrated. The bullock was gone. All of it burned. The wood, gone. And they, they had even poured water all over the sacrifice, down to where it had filled up a trench around the sacrifice. The fire leaped down in the trench and it sucked up the water all the way around. Elijah was there and he was challenging uh, uh, the, the uh, false prophets of Baal. He was challenging the hearts of the Israelites and who they would serve. He looked out in the eye before the whole thing started and he said, How long halt ye between two opinions? How long are you going to both serve Baal and serve God? You pick one and quit riding the fence. And he called down fire and God's fire fell out of heaven and consumed everything. Looking at the accomplishments of Elijah this morning, we see he challenged God's enemy. Letter B, he called down God's fire. Letter C, we see he concluded Israel's drought. From there, these false prophets are surrounded by the Israeli people. And Elijah goes in at the word of the Lord and he slays all 450 of those false prophets killing out the false prophets of Baal and their service to Baal. And then at that time, uh, Elijah's job now is to call on the Lord and end this three-plus-year drought. Look at verse 41. The Bible says, And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound abundance of rain. First Kings 18.42 So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, this is the servant speaking, There ariseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. And he, Elijah, said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab, 
to the entrance of Jezreel. What happened here? Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. He put his head down between his uh, knees. He began to pray and fervently seek the face of God that this drought would end. And after seven times of sending his servant to look at a clear blue sky on the seventh time, the servant came back and said, I just see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And Elijah said, well, that's all I need. He said, tell Ahab to gather himself up and get back to uh, to Jezreel because the storm is a-coming. And boy, did it come. The drought ended at the prayer and at the request of Elijah. Elijah's accomplishments. Elijah prayed and stopped the rain. Elijah prayed and started the rain. Elijah confronted evil. Elijah uh, uh, called down fire. And Elijah concluded the drought. Listen, let me just say this morning is that when you're doing the work of the Lord, I hope you'll hear me on this. When you're doing the work of the Lord and you're doing the rest of your responsibilities, and I, I believe sometimes, and I believe really the line needs to be blurred. I don't care what you do for a living. There was a day where I rolled tires off the end of a truck. I've been a telemarketer. Hopefully I didn't call any of you. Amen. Uh, I've done all kinds of odds, odd and end jobs. I've inspected homes. Uh, uh, that were in foreclosure. I've done all kinds of work, but can I tell you, even in those jobs, that was the calling of God in my life at that time. Whether I was at church teaching a Sunday school class or preaching a sermon or I was inspecting an empty home, God wanted me to do that for His glory and His honor. Really, the lines get blurred there uh, with, with the calling of God in our life. But when we're doing the work of the Lord, we can get, we can get wore out on the journey. Number two, we see Elijah's adversaries. Elijah's adversaries. Jumping right into this letter A, we see evil powers. Look down with me at 1 Kings chapter number 18 and verse 25. Notice here the, 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 the powers of evil present in this passage. The Bible says, And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or pre-adventure he sleepeth, and must be awaked. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets. So the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past. And they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. Now, let me ask this question. How many of you grew up through some kind of a Sunday school system? Would you raise your hand? You grew up as a child going to Sunday school? Okay, um, then if you if you did, then you're probably like me. I've heard this story given in Sunday school as a child many, many times. I've probably even taught it in children's Sunday school this way. Uh, and i got to say that I don't agree totally with this. The way it was presented to me as a child was Elijah represented God, and the prophets of Baal represented this, this piece of stone that had no power. And here they are marching around and, and dancing and cutting themselves, calling on nothing. How many of you have heard it taught similar to that? Can I tell you, I don't believe that to be true. Do you remember back in, in, in Exodus when uh, uh, Moses and Aaron threw their rod on the ground? 
You remember what happened when the magicians and the sorcerers threw theirs on the ground? They converted into snakes. There was a superpower behind the magicians, and his name was Satan. Do you remember when Moses, or, or rather Aaron, stuck his rod in the water and turned it into blood? Do you remember the sorcerers stuck their rod down in the water and turned it into blood? Ask yourself this question. Why would 450 prophets agree to this if they didn't think they could do it? I believe with all my heart those prophets thought that they could call down fire out of heaven. I believe that those prophets maybe had even done something similar in the past. You say, well, why weren't they able to do it? Because there is a God who would handcuff Satan. There is a God that was not going to allow that to happen. But had God not gotten involved, I believe they would have called fire down out of heaven. Now, that's my opinion. Obviously, it didn't happen. That can't be proven. But we do know that there is a power behind idol worship. They marched around. That didn't work. They started jumping up and down on the altar. That didn't work. So what did they do next? They got out knives and lancets. They started cutting themselves. They were trying to get hold of the God's attention. Cutting yourself is a way of getting hold of Satan on a deeper level. For the Christian, I would say the parallel for the Christian is fasting. Fasting. You need something from God and you pray. You talk to the Lord in prayer. You know, God's casually listening to you, but you're not really getting what you want, so you supplicate. You pray on a deeper level. You're still not really getting an answer from God. God says, I want you to seek my face more earnestly. So what do you do? You, you skip food. Not, listen, I believe in fasting. I think it's a practice that needs to be regular in the life of a Christian. I'm not going to get up here and talk about me fasting because the Bible says it's to be done in private. And I don't think you need to walk around telling other people that you fast because the Bible is very clear that that needs to be a private thing. But Christian, you need to fast. You need to fast. Why does a Christian fast? Because they're trying to get hold of God on a deeper level. These magicians, these prophets rather, they could not get hold of their gods. So they took out knives. They began to cut themselves. They took out lancets. And they began to cut themselves. The purpose of this sermon isn't to dive into this real deep, but I feel it necessary to say this here. The cutting of oneself is more common than any of us want to admit. There are teenagers and young adults, sometimes even adults in their middle ages, that have a set of blades that they keep hidden under a couch or under a bed, hidden in a closet. When no one's looking, they'll take those out and they'll cut themselves. There are a number of reasons why a teenager might do that, a young man might do that. Maybe you feel as though someone has hurt you in a vulnerable time and you're trying to punish them by punishing yourself. Can I tell you that that is satanic in nature? Something that you may be very embarrassed about if you're one here that does that. Will you look up here at me for a minute? Will you look into the eyes of a pastor that loves you? 
I want to say this with as much love in my voice as I can. If you're doing that, don't be ashamed. Come get help. My wife and I would love to sit and help you. We'll love to get you past this. Listen, we're not here to condemn you or to look down on you. We're here to love you and to help you. There are other people who cut themselves because that's the end thing to do. That's the fad. Everyone at school's doing it. I worked at a church ministry that had a large Christian school for a while, and uh, there were teenagers who were cutting themselves because they had serious issues in their past. There were other teenagers who were doing it because there were other teenagers who were doing it. And if you're here today and you're cutting yourself because other people at school are doing it, knock it off. Knock it off. That's foolishness. But if you're here today and you're doing that and you don't know how to stop, please come and get help. Elijah's adversaries, he was facing, he was facing Satan himself. Letter B, we see here corrupt politicians. Turn with me over to 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse number 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse number 19. The Bible says there, And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa king of Judah began... Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. What was Ahab, or rather, what was Elijah facing? What, what, who were his adversaries? Well, Satan himself had launched an all-out assault on Elijah, but Satan was using uh, Ahab and Satan was using Je- uh, Jezebel to accomplish that assault. Let me just help you understand how corrupt of a politician Ahab was. One day Ahab went out of his palace for a walk, and not too far away from his palace there was this grape vineyard. He, he makes his way into the great vineyard and he's just ooing and awing at how pretty it is. And he comes up on the keeper, the owner of the vineyard, Naboth, and he strikes up a conversation with Naboth and he tries to buy the vineyard from Naboth. And Naboth looks at him and says, Sir, this has been given to me by, by, by my family through my ancestral years. The, the, the vineyard is not for sale. And old Naboth, he... He storms out of the the vineyard and he runs up to his bedroom in his palace and he closes the door and he puts his arms across his chest and his little his bottom lip comes out and he throws himself a pity party. He gets the poochie lip disease, as has been described by Patch the Pirate. His wife comes in and brings him some food and says, Eat, sweetheart. And he says, I'm not eating anything until I get that vineyard. Huh! And Jezebel says, you want the vineyard? I'll get you the vineyard. And so Jezebel creates some false accusations and has a phony trial. Lynch mob type trial. They take him, they take Naboth, and they stone him to death. Jezebel collects the deed to the property and hands it to her husband and says, here you go, all yours. Please, get up and eat. Corrupt, corrupt politicians. Look with me in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 4. How corrupt were these politicians? It says, Therefore it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took in a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So Obadiah is a good guy. Obadiah was inside of the 
inside of the political system there. And Obadiah was like a secret service type uh, believer. He uh, 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 was hiding uh, the prophets in the caves to try to keep them alive. Why? Because Jezebel was killing Elijah's peers. Jezebel was eliminating the peers. Sometimes it can feel like the political system is against you. Letter C, we see false prophets. Look back with me at 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21. The Bible says there, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? The Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Just a verse or two later, you see that there were 450 prophets of Baal that were there to face Elijah, and Elijah was standing alone. Let me just say that this morning that let me, I believe the reason why many people grow weary in their journey serving the Lord, the reason why they grow weary is because they're doing it all alone. Doing it all alone. Now we hear this story that there were 450 prophets of Baal, and to us that's just a number that goes through our heads. But will you stop and think about this for a minute? Here you have Elijah professionally standing up for God. He looks across the way, there are 450 men who opposed him in their ideology. They opposed him in their hearts. They opposed them in their lifestyle. They opposed them. They hated him. They wanted him eliminated. They wanted him gone. And Elijah was standing all by himself. And Elijah collapsed there under that tree. And he said, God, I just want you to kill me. Could have, in large part, been because Elijah was trying to do it all by himself. All by himself. Some of you are in a work situation where you are the only Christian at your job. It's break time and everybody goes outside to get their smoke in and talk bad about their spouse. And you find yourself alone in the break room with your Bible. All by yourself trying to stand for what's right. At lunchtime, you bow your head and try to pray... And while you're praying, there are people cursing in the background. You get in your car on a Sunday morning and you back out of the driveway and you look to your left and you look to your right and your neighbors are all outside landscaping. Boy, they've got that lawn manicured and looking pretty. Boy, you've been working hard. Your life is busy. Your lawn's not just perfect. And your neighbors almost snarl at you as you pull out of the driveway headed to church. You're serving God all alone. You go to a family reunion. Your brothers and your sisters and your aunts and your uncles and your mom and your dad, they, they crack open a beer, they light up a cigarette, and they're using foul language. And you're there because you love your family, but you're sticking out like a, a, a sore thumb. You're standing alone. You're standing alone. It wears on you after a while, doesn't it? Elijah got to the place where he was totally convinced in his heart, all by myself. Nobody else wants to do right. It's just me. And it wore him down. It made the journey too great. We're looking at five observations of the journey of Elijah here that that were too great for him. Point number one of the message, we looked at Elijah's accomplishments. Point number two, we looked at his adversaries. Number three, notice Elijah's appeal. Elijah's appeal. Letter A, notice that his flesh was weary. Look with me at 1 Kings Chapter 18, verse 45. Here, we get come back to the story there where Elijah had 
prayed and called for the rain, and now the rain's going to begin to pour. The Bible says in 45, And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So uh, Elijah picks up the robe that he's wearing, and he outruns the chariot down Mount Carmel and on into the city, and his running wasn't done. He got there, and Ahab gets back into in, into town, and he tells uh, Jezebel everything that happened with the slaying of the prophets, and Jezebel gets really upset. Look at verse 1 of, of 1 Kings 19, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain the prophets with the sword, then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more so also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, and about this time, Elijah had just defeated 450 men by himself. And now he was afraid of one woman. One woman. One woman. What did Elijah do? His flesh was weary. What did he do? He turned and he ran. Look at verse number 3. After when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. He ran, and 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 he ran. He got to a place where he had run so hard and so long that his flesh was weary. You know, for some of you here, You've been going so long and so hard at such a frantic pace in life that you're weary. And the journey's just become too great. He said, Lord, kill me! I'm ready to die. Why? Because his flesh is weary. Let me help you with something here today. Some of you are, are wore out. You're flat out exhausted. In 2017, we've got so much technology and all this is supposed to make our life easier. And what it does is it makes more time available for us to be busier. We get down to the end of the day and, man, we, our head hits the pillow, we're asleep in 30 seconds. And you come up off the pillow and you need 14 cups of coffee to get you going and you're living on artificial consciousness. And it's go, 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 go. You know, God didn't create you to work that way. And there are seasons of times where you're busier than others. But when you're busy and your flesh is weary, that's the worst time to make major decisions in your life. Let her be noticed as view is warped. Look down with me at 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 9. The Bible says, And he came thither into a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What dost thou hear, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah had kind of taken a uh, an indefinite leave of absence, if you will. Uh, we, and we'll get into what happened there in a minute. But he, he fell down under the tree. And he slept. And when he woke up, the angel of the Lord fed him. And then he slept and he woke up. And he was supposed to go back to work. But you know what he did? He sat around and he twiddled his thumbs. He kind of had one of those Peter moments where Peter said, I go a fishing. Peter, I think Peter had totally quit and God had to talk him back into it. But Elijah was just, he was just not ready to get back up and going. You could call it a, um, a vacation with no return date, if you will. 
And God comes down to Elijah after he had fed him and allowed him to get some sleep, and he says, Elijah, what are you still doing here? And Elijah is living in pity party pit. Elijah looks up in God and he goes, well, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one serving you. I'm all alone. God tells Elijah, look down with verse 18. God tells Elijah, he says, Yet I I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Elijah said, God, I'm trying to stand for you, but I'm all by myself. God said, no, Elijah, you're not. I've got 7,000 others that have not bowed the knee, bowed a knee to Baal. You know, his view was warped. He thought it was much worse than it was. I've shared my story here a couple of times uh, in the last year. But I, I remember uh, living in Terryville, Connecticut, after having been thrown out of the ministry and um, in a very hurtful way. And I was living in pity party pit. I was driving a, a truck, rolling tires off the end of the truck. I, I, I have a professional career. I had a professional degree, uh, career. I've got a college degree to have that professional career. And here I am working an entry-level job that no education was required to get. And, and I was living in pity party pit, thinking about how terrible my life was and how unfair things were. And you know, I remember one day the Holy Spirit of God spoke to my heart. And He said to me, Richard... Stop your whining. He said, do you know that there are Christians in the Middle East that are getting their heads chopped off for me today? They would trade places with you where you're at right now in a heartbeat. Can I tell you, my friend, your journey may be tough. You may be walking down a path And God's taking you down that path, and you just don't get it. I promise you someone's got it worse. And I'm not here to belittle your situation. I want to help you through your situation. The best I can is your friend and your pastor. But never, ever, ever lose sight of the fact that there are people that have it worse than you do. His view is totally warped, and he had given up on serving God. Why? At least for a brief... Because his view was warped. Sometimes we need to be given a fresh perspective. Point number four this morning, we see Elijah's angel. Elijah's angel. Do you remember, do you guys remember when Christ faced temptation in Matthew 4? You remember that story? Satan takes him through the three temptations. What did the angels do to him, do for him once he was done? You guys remember that? They came and they fed him, right? They ministered to him by feeding him. I'm going to give you letter A and B back to back. We're going to talk about them together. Letter A, notice his sleep. Letter B, notice his sustenance. You guys like that alliteration? Sustenance. I was listening to a Patch the Pirate CD with my kids. And Patch says, you know, I could use some sustenance. And I thought, what does that word mean? And so I looked it up and it means food. And guys, I'll just tell you, I'm a believer that if the word means food, as men, we ought to know what it is. Amen? So count yourself as educated if you didn't know what that word meant. What did Elijah need when he was wore out? He came and he fell down into the tree. He said, Lord, take my life. I'm ready to die. And God didn't allow him to die. God just let him sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep. 
And when Elijah woke up, there was an angel there. The angel had started a fire and had cooked bread. Maybe sort of like the manna that the Israelites ate. And there was a cruise of water at his head. And he took that and he ate it and he drank it. And then you know what he did? He went back to sleep. And he slept some more and he wake, when he woke back up, there was more food available for him. You say, Pastor, my journey has been too hard for me. What is something practical that I can take away from the message today? Well, you're not going to expect to hear this from a preacher on a Sunday morning in church, but maybe the best advice I can get to you is go get some sleep. Go get some sleep. Um, there's this mentality, especially in you older folks, and, uh, and I can even see it in myself there because of the way I was raised. I was raised by someone who's an older folk now. Amen? Don't tell them I said that. I, I get three weeks of vacation every year. I only take one week, bless God. I get 15 sick days or whatever, 10 sick days a year. I haven't taken a sick day in 35 years. There's nothing wrong with taking a sick day and getting some rest. Nothing wrong with it. You know, Elijah's sleep was sleep depraved. Let me have your attention up here. Elijah was sleep depraved. And because Elijah was sleep depraved, it caused him to act and think foolishly. Some of you this morning, what you need to do is you need to go home this afternoon and take a nap. You need to take a nap. Our tax cell lady, some of you think they need to go home and take a nap. Amen? Some of them are napping right now. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. They're all awake. At least they better be now, right? Sometimes the best thing you do is just go home and take a nap. Sometimes the best thing you do is take a day off and do nothing. You know, uh, here's another area that's a little more touchy. You know what else Elijah did was he ate. Now, we all like to eat. You either live to eat or you eat to live. And I think I border more on the live to eat side. I love to eat good food. Um, do you know that God cares about what you put in your body? Some of you are exhausted because your eating habits are terrible. Terrible. What does the Bible tell us? Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. God cares about what you put in your body. There's nothing wrong with stopping at McDonald's occasionally some of you cringe as soon as I say McDonald's. Uh, there's nothing wrong with stopping at McDonald's occasionally and getting a Big Mac and fries and, and, a, and a soda to drink. Nothing wrong with that. But you can't live that way. You can't live that way. You need to eat right. You need to eat in a way that's healthy. Elijah's angel. Number five, lastly, we see Elijah's advancement. After Elijah woke up and he was kind of sitting around twirling his thumbs and contemplating quitting, God took Elijah and moved him into a cave. And as he sat in that cave, God allowed a great wind, the Bible tells us, that came through and ripped the mountain in half. Probably what we would call a tornado, a great strong wind. The Bible says, rent the mountain in half. The Bible tells us that God was not in the mountain. Next, God sent an earthquake. The Bible says that God was not in the earthquake. Next, a fire blazed through. God was not in the fire. The Bible tells us there in 1 Corinthians 19 that God was rather there in the still, small voice. You say, Pastor, the journey's too great for me. What do I do? Well, get some sleep. 
eat right, and then listen for the Holy Spirit of God to speak to you inside of your heart to show you what to do. To show you what to do. Some of you, you're, you're moving so fast, you're going so hard, that if God were to speak to you through that still small voice, you'd never hear it. You'd never hear it. Put the brakes on. Be still. Be still. Be still. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm tells us in chapter 37. Listen to that still small voice. God restores a weary soul through the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. Notice the point there is Elijah's advancement. Arguably, what Elijah would do next would be the greatest thing Elijah would ever do with his life. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 19. Once Elijah was restored physically, emotionally, and spiritually, he went on to do something incredible. Look at chapter 19 and verse 19. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with the twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he, with the twelve, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. What did Elijah do? He got up out of pity party pit. He got up from a tough time in his life. He got up after being restored and he went and he made an investment in the next generation. He went and found Elisha. Elijah went and found Elisha and he trained him and he invested in him and he taught him and he prepared him. And the day came where Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot, but Elisha would go on to do twice as many miracles in the Bible as Elijah did. Some of you today, life has beat you down and the journey has been too great for thee. The journey's been too great for thee. Don't quit. 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 Stay at it. Pick yourself up. Get that restoration. And go and find somebody and make an investment. And someone who can, who can live on past you. I finished with this. The day is going to come where a preacher stands over your body and preaches your funeral. And that preacher gets in a car and drives out to a graveside. And your body is laid down in that grave. And a headstone is placed there by your casket. And on that headstone is going to have your name. It's going to have your birth date, date of birth. It's going to have your date of death. I'm here to tell you that you can live on past that date of death. Oh no, your person won't live past. If you'll make a decision to invest in this next generation, you can live on through them. I wonder how many times Elisha thought back to something Elijah said and said, I'm going to do it this way because of the way I was trained. What was Elijah's advancement? He picked himself up and he made a difference. Especially in this service. I have what I would call fourth quarter Christians sitting in the service. You're in the fourth quarter of your life. Can I encourage you to finish the quarter strong? Go out in a blaze of glory. Give it all you got. Don't sit on the sidelines and say, well, I did my part, live in the past. 
I'm going to let the new kids who have more energy come in behind me. No, no, no. You get in there and you go hard until the day you die. And you let God do something great as you train and you're involved in the next generation. I think back to my grandmother, my godly sweet grandmother, my mom's mom. Her name was Louise Atkins. Louise Atkins has taught, taught more ladies how to sew than maybe any other woman that's ever lived. But I think maybe the greatest thing I can say about my grandmother is all the way until uh, uh, she was unable to drive, she would show up to the church on a Saturday morning. She would find some young teenage girl or young adult girl and put her in the car and take her out soul winning and train that young lady how to be a soul winner. She made an investment. And at her funeral, hundreds of young ladies showed up and gave testimony about the investment that was made. Let that be your story. Is the journey too great for thee? Don't quit. Don't quit. Find that still small voice and let God speak to you. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Strong to the end. Strong to the end. How many this morning would say, Pastor Lejeune, 